This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. History isn't just a bunch of names and dates and facts. It's the collection of all the stories throughout human history that explain how and why we got here. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, where we look at the forgotten, neglected, strange, and even counterfactual stories that made our world what it is. I'm your host, Scott Rank. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our series, Key Battles of World War I. In the last episode, we looked at 1915 and what was happening. It was relatively quiet as far as a year can be in World War I, and it seems like the Central Powers are doing well. The Ottomans managed to hold back the Allies in the Battle of Gallipoli and keep the Dardanelles. The hope was that the Ottomans would be knocked out of the war. That didn't happen. Also, the Germans are successful along with the Austro-Hungarians in attacking Serbia. Italy joins the war. And this is about the height of the position of the Central Powers. We're now going to be moving into 1916. And what we're going to see happening is a number of things. But basically, to set the stage a little bit before James uh, takes it away for us, is that France's failures to expel Germany in 1915 is matched by Russia's failures on the Eastern Front. Uh, ever since the debacles of what we saw in the battles of Tannenberg and the Masurian Lakes in 1914, Russia is mostly on the defensive against the better-equipped German army. And their losses mount, with the fighting shifting to Poland, which is now lost to Russia. And even St. Petersburg is beginning to look vulnerable. So Russia is not in a position to seriously threaten Berlin. And that's going to take us to 1916. So 
what's happening there and what kicks off the Battle of Verdun? All right. Well, we are going to have several major battles or key battles that, as we call them, in 1916. It's going to turn out to be a very monumental year. In fact, it's often called the Year of Battles. And that's because in that year, the three greatest battles in world history up to that point occurred. And they occurred largely simultaneously. The first of the three to begin was Verdun. Verdun is, I, I don't know what you could say about Verdun. I mean, we're going we're gonna to say some things, but it's so epic and so iconic. And it has such a place in the French imagination and the French memory. It is a massive, massive battle. It's going to be one of the bloodiest and deadliest battles in the war. And it's going to take 10 months. <laughs> Scott and I were talking offline earlier about should it really be called a battle or a campaign? <laughs> you know, it's really more of a campaign because it's a long series of attack and retreat and counterattack and all that. But we're going to stick with convention and just call it the battle. <laughs> 11 month, I mean, sorry, 10 month long battle. And you also think of movement with a campaign. This is more of a tug of war. Yeah, exactly. There's a teeny bit of movement, but nothing like what you'll see in mo most other wars. So let's get right to it. Uh, let's start by talking about the rationale behind the attack. Why did this even occur? Germany had not launched any major offensives for a while, and they were kind of looking over their shoulder to the east a little bit nervously. Russia was increasing its munitions supply, and also Britain's army was increasing in size. Scott and I told the, the joke, which is from Otto von Bismarck, about how if the British army dares to cross the English Channel, we'll just have them arrested. <laughs> Because the British army was tiny at the beginning of the war compared to the other armies, but not now. By January 1916, the British army had one million men and it was still growing. In addition, Britain was importing an increasing number of supplies from the U.S. So Falkenhayn, you know, he's now the supreme commander of the German army. Well, technically that's the Kaiser, but he's the chief of staff. He's the senior general in the German army. He realizes that time is not on his side. Uh, time is on the Allies' side. It is true that in 1915, the, on, uh, the Central Powers had a good year, but he saw the handwriting on the wall. He felt that Britain was the main enemy on the Western Front. But to get to Britain, he felt that, the, uh, that Britain's best sword, as he said, which was France, has to be attacked. He, this would knock the sword out of Britain's hand. So it's kind of uh, convoluted thinking, Scott, but we're going to defeat Britain by beating the crap out of France, basically. That's what we're going to do. Once we defeat France, Britain will probably turn tail and go home, and we'll, then we can focus on the Russians full time. That was the thinking. Germany had the advantage in munitions production. German artillery in particular was better than that of France or Britain. Artillery caused about 75% of casualties. So Falkenhayn said, hey, we've got this great artillery. Let's use it, and let's use it in, by the bucket load. So as his primary target, Falkenhayn chose the legendary French fortress of Verdun. This was an ancient city going way back into the uh, early Middle Ages, and it was a sacred spot for France. You know, it'd like, be like Jerusalem to, uh, well, to the Jews and to the Arabs, actually. Or, you know, think about Washington, D.C., or, or the Alamo to Texans. You know, it's a spot that he knew the French were not going to give up. There is no way they're going to allow the Germans to take Verdun, so they're going to fight to the death. 
And Verdun jutted out in a salient. A salient is just like a bulge. If you think about the Battle of the Bulge, that's a salient, uh, the, the position in that battle. But anyway, that's another war. We'll, we're not going to talk <laughs> about the Battle of the Bulge. But it's just – it's a salient. It's like a little – almost like a triangular-shaped spearhead that's jutting into German territory, and therefore it could be attacked from three sides, you know, north, south, and from the east. But the town of Verdun, uh, with, with its uh, historic fortress, was surrounded by a lot of other forts. There were 20 major forts dominated by a fort called Fort Duomont, and there were 40 minor forts as well. So a lot of forts. I mean, that's like 60 forts. It's a great defensive position. They were organized into an outer ring and an inner one. And Joffre, thinking that Verdun would not be attacked, had moved many of the fort's defenders to other parts of the Western Front. Uh, Joseph Joffre is the uh, Supreme French Army commander. He had actually weakened Verdun. He thought, they're not going to attack Verdun. There's no way. So uh, anyway... So that's why the Germans wanted to attack there. Uh, Marshal Falkenheim wanted to pound Verdun with artillery. And in his words, this is a famous quote, he wanted to, quote, bleed the French army white, unquote. And he called the operation Gericht, which is judgment. Not very subtle right there. Yeah, we're going to judge the crap out of you guys. So that's the rationale. What do you think, Scott? Yeah, well, I, I just want to follow up your point there on the significance of Verdun because there's a, this is almost a psyops campaign. And um, some have said that the Germans intentionally or unintentionally are taking a page from Sun Tzu uh, by choosing Verdun as the site. Uh, it I, For recent history in France, it was part of Lorraine, which had not been ceded to the Germans in 1871 after the Franco-Prussian War. Um, but the city was an important center in the Frankish Empire going back to 843 AD at least. And at this date, Charlemagne's domains are divided amongst his sons with the Treaty of Verdun. Uh, so the territories in the west are given to his grandson Charles the Bald. Those to the east go to Charles's brother, uh, Louis the German. And the central kingdom is given to the third and eldest brother, Lothar. So Lorraine is derived from Lotharingia, uh, Lotharingia, whatever, uh, the kingdom of Lothar. Um, so according to French history, Charles's kingdom is the progenitor of France, and Louis' kingdom is the progenitor of the German nation. Uh, and then these lands are contested for centuries. Uh, and France had fought, oh, and Germany had fought over these uh, land for a long time. Uh, France was, Verdun was officially ceded to France as a result of the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, which is marked as uh, a major treaty that creates modern Europe in many ways. Uh, the extensive fortifications were put around it by French military engineers, and they were expanded following France's defeat in the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, it was the last French fortress to face the German frontier, uh, facing the German frontier to surrender. Uh, so Falkenhayn's prediction about French high command's response to an attack on Verdun was that um, they would they would fight a ruinous battle to save it. Uh, so the Sun Tzu tie-in is that he says in The Art of War, if asked how to cope with a great host of the enemy in orderly array and on the point of marching to the attack, I should say, Begin by seizing something which your opponent holds dear. Then he will be amenable to your will. So the idea is that attacking Verdun would draw France into a war of attrition. Uh, but 
things aren't going to go quite as well as Germany suspects, or it's not going to be as easy as they think. They think that Verdun is going to break France. So let's talk about it. James, walk us through the preparations for the battle. Yeah, the Germans undergo massive, massive preparations. The main attacking force would be the 5th Army. We talked about in a previous episode how the German armies along the line went in order from the 1st Army was the one closest to the coast, you know, the North Sea and the English Channel. The 2nd was south of that and the 3rd and so on. So we're down to the 5th Army. It was commanded by Crown Prince Wilhelm, or William in English. Uh, He was the son of Kaiser Wilhelm. And he was actually a pretty good general, believe it or not. Huh. Uh, yeah, it was what I was reading. He was he was not bad. Sometimes nepotism works. Yeah, sometimes. You just never know. Uh, he would have nine divisions. A division is about 15,000 soldiers, give or take. And the army's artillery would be sent on 1,300 trains. 1,300 trains, not cars. <laughs> no, no, no. Trains, separate <laughs> trains. That is just mind-boggling. To accompany these trains, the German army had to build 10 new railway lines and over 20 railway stations in addition to regular roads. So we've got a lot of construction and engineering going on in addition to just bringing up the troops. They evacuated several towns on the German side of Verdun to make room for the army. They built underground barracks, just all these elaborate preparations. The German Air Force was going to launch 168 planes to conduct an aerial barrage to keep the French Air Force from spying on German positions. Now, Falkenheim ordered preparations for offenses to be made at other parts of the Western Front, too, so that allies would not know exactly where the attack would occur. So there would be feints and diversionary attacks as well. The attack was planned originally for February 12th in honor of Abraham Lincoln, (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. That is his birthday, but I kind of doubt they took that into consideration. But the weather caused them to have to delay the attack, and this gave the French more time to strengthen the defenses at Verdun. So there was actually a a French general who Joffre commanded to just, you know, leave, to get out of there, to go to evacuate or whatever. He didn't. He, he, He disobeyed orders, and it's a good thing for the French he did. All right, that brings us to the opening stage of the battle. You want to just launch into that? Well, uh, one other thing, um, I'll mention this uh, real quickly, is that um, you said earlier that the French had ordered Verdun city defenses reduced to basically a skeleton crew in the weeks leading up to the battle. So why did they do that? And part of it is that, um, interestingly enough, in 1916, the conventional wisdom is that fixed fortifications are basically obsolete. Right. The, yeah. the, do like the fall of fortresses in Belgium and uh, Mabouge. How do you pronounce that again? Uh, <laughs> I don't have it with me. Okay. Sorry. So, sorry, everyone. But anyway, a fort in France fell early in the war. The idea was why place men and artillery pieces in a single fixed spot where you become easily trapped. And Verdun, at least at, before the battle, was a quiet part of the Western Front and Joffre. Um, needed men for an offensive that he planned to launch in 1916 along the Somme. Yeah, he had his own, own had his own plans and his own timetable. Right, which you know everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, like Mike Tyson said. <laughs> so anyway, all that to say, uh, all that's that at least explains why um, things are happening the way they are in the opening stage. So yeah, and it makes sense when you look at what happened in Belgium. When the you know the Germans are bringing up these massive, massive cannon that launch a shell that weighs almost two thousand pounds and just rips through 
concrete and steel, reinforced concrete, you know, like it was butter. I mean, it makes sense that they would be a little bit skeptical about the, uh, the effectiveness of fixed fortifications. Right. But anyway, uh, and, and by the way, the Germans are bringing up several of those big, massive guns, too. They were nicknamed Big Berthas uh, by somebody. I forget whether that was the Germans' own name for them or somebody else's nickname. But let's get up to the battle. So the battle, I said earlier, was delayed. It, it finally begins on February 21st. The Germans launched a massive artillery barrage. The barrage used over 1,200 guns, including several of the Big Berthas, as I said. It stretched over 12 miles. It lasted nine hours. They used one million, approximately, total shells. That's wow. 20 tons of shells per acre. 40 shells fell per minute. Uh, Dan Carlin says in his podcast series on World War I that you wouldn't want to be in any World War I battle. You know, they were all awful. None of them were fun. But if he had to pick the one that he would least want to be in, it would be Verdun, especially during this opening barrage. Regarding this barrage, uh, Marshal Falkenhayn said, no line is to remain unbombarded. That's a word that <laughs> my, my grammar checker didn't like that one. But anyway, <laughs> he said, no possibilities of supply will be unmolested and nowhere should the enemy feel himself safe. A million shells will do that. Yeah. When they're just raining down, like, you know, like it's a thunderstorm of steel. French communications were cut off. They couldn't use the telephones. Reinforcements could not be brought in. The command structure was disrupted. So many officers were killed. You know, what do you do if, let's say, your regimental commander, your colonel is killed? Well, okay, the lieutenant colonel takes over. Well, what if he dies? Okay, the major takes over. What if he's dead? You know, pretty soon you've got these really uh, people that are commanding way above their pay grade. And some regiments didn't even have officers. After the barrage ended, one French soldier wrote that of every five men— this is another quote. Two have been buried alive under shelter. Two are wounded to some extent or another. And the fifth is waiting. Oh. <laughs> so that's, that's just, it's hell. It's living hell. Hey, everyone. Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. On the second day, the Germans unleashed a flamethrower attack. And on day three, they had advanced two miles, which doesn't sound like a lot, but for the Western Front, that's a lot. They had taken 3,000 prisoners in three days. On the 24th of February, the fourth day, the Germans broke through at Beaumont, not Beaumont, Texas, but Beaumont, France, <laughs> and uh, uh, Samonieu, my French friend helped me with that one, that's north of Verdun on the left side of the battle line. The French had to fall back. They lost 10,000 more prisoners, and the war had become, at least for a little while, a war of motion again. It went from being static to dynamic. And on the 25th, the key French fort that I mentioned earlier, Fort Douaumont, fell. And, and it was captured by just one German sergeant and a handful of men. <laughs> he was just walking around. Those guys were walking around. They couldn't find anybody. And they finally found a handful of guys and they surrendered <laughs> in short order. The German advance then stopped only four miles from Verdun. That night, uh, Joffre realized he needed to do something fast. So he get, he made a very good decision. And he gave the command of Verdun and the area to a man that's going to have a big future. We're going to be hearing a lot from him, in fact, in two world wars, Henri-Philippe Pétain. And Pétain, I think he was just a colonel at this time, but he, he shot up through the ranks really quickly. At least he was a colonel when the war began. Pétain was told that Verdun must be held. And he also did something really masterful. He opened a supply line to Verdun, and it became known as the Sacred Road. Eventually, this, this one road, just one road came from west, further to the west, and it brought in 190,000 men and 23,000 tons of ammunition. This must have been a constant conveyor belt of humans um, going back and forth there. Yeah. At some point, I think, like— there were like 14 or 10, 10 or four, the number 14 sticks at me. I should have written that down, but it was like 10 or 12 or 14 trucks every minute were coming in. It was just a, like you said, like a conveyor belt of trucks coming in, going out, coming back. And Pétain also set up a rotation system for the soldiers so that you didn't just have guys that were stuck in Verdun all the time and other guys that never were there. So he would move soldiers out and bring in some fresh reinforcements who hadn't been there, generally serving about two weeks before being relieved. About and it, by the end of this campaign, which is going to be, you know, by the end of the year, about seventy-five percent of the entire French army had spent at least some time in Verdun. That's simply amazing. Uh, Pétain also ordered his own artillery barrage of the German lines, and by the end of February, German and French casualties were roughly equal. And one French casualty, Scott and I love to drop names for people that are going to have big futures, or at least I do. <laughs> uh, there was a young lieutenant named Charles de Gaulle. Charles de Gaulle. He is, or Charles, he's going to have obviously a huge future. But at this time, he was a very young lieutenant. He was wounded, but I guess fortunately for the French people in the future, he was not killed. So that takes us down through February and March and up to the spring. 
or actually that, that takes us in through February. We're about to go into March. All right. Well, yeah, let's keep going. So what happens in the spring? So on March 6th, the Germans launched another barrage and as if they hadn't, you know, blown them up enough, let's blow them up some more. Let's use those shells we have and an infantry attack. The Germans established themselves behind the initial French front line. So they were making, continuing to make progress. More French soldiers are surrendering. Things are not looking good for France at this point. It's looking like Falkenhayn's plan had succeeded. But the French counterattacked on March 8th, my birthday. They did it in honor of me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, before you were born, seen into the future. Yeah, they had the gift of prophecy. And, and Anyway, the Germans were slowed down and unable to advance. On the 15th, the Germans made some five successive attacks on another one of the major forts surrounding Verdun, Fort Vaux. It failed. The village of Vaux, however, changed hands 13 times. The guy whose job it was to raise the flag, it was, he was probably <laughs> exhausted. <laughs> it's like, oh, whoop, up goes the German flag. Nope, down goes the German flag. Up goes the French flag. It's like, be exhausting to be a villager there is, um, am I saying uh, Viva la France or um, Deutschland yeah, über all else? What am I saying here? <laughs> right. So, yeah, so the German attack is starting to stall a little bit. In the first five weeks of Verdun, a German soldier was killed on average every 45 seconds. Killed every 45 seconds on average, and it was even worse for the French. Joffre gave an order to the defenders, telling them not to ever surrender, to hold out at all costs. He said, you will be those of whom it is said they barred the way to Verdun. So, in other words, not in my house. <laughs> you guys are you're not coming in. March 20th, the westernmost German corps attacked at Avalcourt, and uh, they took many prisoners. Their attack was stopped by French machine guns, so the French are starting to give as good as they get. Actually, they have been, but especially now. April 9th, Germany attacks across the entire front. They made some gains, but rain forced them to stop for the rest of the month. Weather plays a huge role in this war, as it does in almost every war. May 3rd, Germany opened up another major bombardment with only 500 <laughs> guns this time. Led to a German attack at a place called Cote 304 that succeeded. But here, the smell of dead bodies was so bad that the German conquerors demanded an extra ration of tobacco to cover the smell and extra booze as well. <laughs> and they got it. I, I just I can't imagine the awful, awful stench. The capture of Cote 304 was the first break in the French line. And then May 22nd, France launches the greatest barrage yet in the war. And then French infantry tried to take back the key fort of Dormont. They reached the fort, but they were repulsed. French morale reached a new low. So again, it's not looking good for France. Germany is not just blowing through there anymore, but the French are getting pretty depressed. Well, I can imagine that. And, um, well, I suppose in the spirit of the French army, let's uh, make one more push here since there's a, a lot uh, to cover. So, yeah, you never give up. Right. You never give up in these battles. They, they just keep pushing and pushing. So going into the summer, June 7, the French surrendered Fort Vaux to the Germans. So another major fort falls and it's it's really looking bad. It's looking like they're not going to be able to uh, hold on to Verdun itself. By June 12th, the Germans were closing in on Verdun. But then, at the request of the Austrian chief of staff, the, the highest-ranking Austrian general, Konrad von Holzendorf, 
Falkenhayn sent three divisions, three of his German divisions that he really needed here at Verdun. He sent them to the east to assist Austria against Russia. That is a constant theme through this war is Austria is not very good. <laughs> the army is not very good, and they are constantly having to call for help from Germany. When the Russians started, there's a major Russian attack going on at this time. In fact, we'll do a whole episode on that later. But the Austrians are getting slammed and they're like, help, help, help. So Falkenhayn, much to his dismay, has to strip away three very important divisions. I mean, every division was important. They needed every man they could get. But off they go to the east. June 22nd, the Germans launched a barrage with phosgene gas, also called Green Cross, which is worse than chlorine. If you can imagine that. Then they attacked uh, with the infantry. They took another fort, Fort Theamon, but they failed to take a fourth one, Fort Soville. And that was the second to the last fort before Verdun. So the German wave breaks right before the town and the main fortress of Verdun. By mid-July, the Germans nearly took Fort Soville, but they were repulsed by the French. Another, another try, and it didn't work. August 18th, the French took Fleury, and that lifted French morale. Finally, something good happens, and that caused German morale to sink. By this time, keep in mind the battle, this is, we're in August. The battle's been going on for six months. This incredibly bloody battle, and it just does, there's no end in sight. By August 29th, near the end of the month, the German government had enough of Falkenhayn. So in mid-battle, they, well, they didn't know it was mid-battle, of course, but after six months of German progress, but a failure to close the deal, so to speak. They fired Erich von Falkenhayn. They replaced him with Hindenburg. Hindenburg, of course, was the hero of the East. He, of course, is going to bring Erich Ludendorff with him. Ludendorff is appointed quartermaster general of the German army. Hindenburg and Ludendorff, are the, they're the dream team, right? They're the dynamic duo that they win everywhere they go. And so they're hoping that, to get a little of that magic in the West. Ludendorff ordered the formation of stormtrooper units. Now, don't think about uh, Star Wars and guys in these, like, white armor and They'll stuff. They'll have much better aim than those stormtroopers, listeners. <laughs> yeah, just stormtroopers and Star Wars never hit anything except, like, walls and stuff. But, yeah, these are, like, super hardcore, gung-ho German young guys that they just want to kill. They, they find it fun, and they're, they're eager to be the first ones to, you know, storm into the trenches and have hand grenades and and flamethrowers and all kinds of nasty stuff. Well, uh, one thing I just want to pause here uh, to mention to bring in a, a, another element um, because this is going on for months and months and months. Um, outside of the battle, what does this mean to nearby residents? Um, what we'll see here in Verdun is a common story in World War One that we've seen over and over again, and that is refugees. Uh, major battles like this trigger a refugee crisis. Uh, we saw episodes before when Russia was fleeing east and going through Poland, it burned fields so the pursuing soldiers wouldn't have uh, any food, which triggered a huge refugee crisis. We saw that with refugees fleeing in the Balkans. And the same thing is happening around Verdun, where people are fleeing their homes in terror. They have little or no money, nowhere to go. Sometimes they're taking whatever possessions they have on their person, maybe in a wheelbarrow or a handcart. Uh, there's a description of what happened to these people from uh, a writer, David King, and this is what he saw when they were coming out of Verdun. He said, suddenly freakish shapes loomed up on the road ahead. They crowd to one side as the column slouches by. Old men in heter heterogeneous apparel, 
Women pushing baby carriages piled high with household possessions over and above the wailing occupant. Terror-stricken dumb, they drift by like startled ghosts. Their wide eyes scarcely see the troops. Women half-pushed, half-dragged along, calling for killed or missing babies. Lost children struggling to keep up with forced, uneven steps, moaning pitifully for dead parrots. Where did you come from? What's going on? We shout in passing. But the only answer is a murmur. The big shells, oh, the big shells. So this is terrible for everyone. And these are the scenes that soldiers would be seeing as they're going to and from shuttling to Verdun is this massive transfer of humanity trying to get away and going who knows where for safety. Yeah, you do not want to be a French person when the German army uh, shows up. They had heard all the stories out of Belgium, all the atrocities the German army committed there. I mean, in general, in any war, any war causes refugees. And in any war, you don't want to be present when the enemy army is marching. I mean, Scott and I talked in our Civil War series about how many Southern people headed for the hills or just got got the heck out of Dodge when they heard that the Union Army was coming. We saw this a lot in the Revolutionary War, too. If you're a loyalist and here comes George Washington and the Continental Army, it's time to get moving. Uh, same thing here, except you had, as I mentioned earlier, you had the added stress of, oh, my gosh, what if they do to us what they did to the Belgians? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people had to flee for their lives with just the shirt on their back or maybe a few things they could carry. All right. Let's get into the fall now. The battle's been going on for over six months. We're going to go into September. By the fall, total German casualties. Uh, once again, sorry to sound like a broken record, but that means killed, wounded, missing, captured. Total casualties were about 280,000 men. 280,000 in six months of fighting. French losses were even higher, 315,000. So we're talking well over half a million soldiers either wounded or gone in one form or fashion so and they're not done they are just getting i shouldn't say they're just getting going but they've, they've been going a long time but they're they're nowhere near done okay so hindenburg hindenburg and who is now the supreme german commander he's the third one remember we started with helmut von moltke then we had eric von falkenhayn now Hindenburg and his right-hand man Ludendorff, they visited the Verdun battlefield. They wanted to assess the situation. They got there in early September, and they were appalled by what they saw. Hindenburg said this, Battles there exhausted our forces like an open wound. The battlefield was a regular hell and regarded as such by the troops. I think that very well sums it up very, very concisely. It was a regular hell. Ludendorff added this. He's also going to pick up on the hell motif. He says, Verdun was hell. Verdun was a nightmare for both the staffs and the troops who took part. Our losses were too heavy for us. So Hindenburg ordered the cessation, at least for now, of all German efforts there. You know, let's regroup. Let's, uh, let's do a little bit of R&R &R if we can. Let's get squared away, get reorganized, and then we're going to try again. Meanwhile, the French commander on the scene, uh, Pétain, began preparing for a major French offensive. So the French now are ready to go on the offensive now that the Germans have kind of pushed the pause button. Uh, on September 16th, Hindenburg gave orders for a semi-permanent defensive line to be built behind the German front lines, and this is going to have a major effect on the war. This line, and we'll talk more about it later, it's when you say a line, 
I don't know what you think of, Scott. I mean, you and I know what it's about, but somebody may just think of a bunch of men just standing around in a long line or maybe in just like one trench or something. No, no, no. It's going to be an elaborate, the most elaborate trench network yet. Uh, and it's called the Hindenburg Line by the British, although the Germans call it the Siegfried position. So, and it is going to be very, very, very strong defensively, very difficult to attack, but it's not going to be attacked for now. October 19th, the French army began a major bombardment of Fort Douaumont, and this eroded the layer of dirt that covered the fort, taking away some of the defense. Uh, the Germans evacuated the fort, but another German unit occupied the fort and tried to defend it. The French, meanwhile, occupied the first line of German trenches and took many prisoners. Now, this is the line of trenches near Verdun, not not the the super duper one that I was talking about earlier. This is not the Siegfried line. That's that's just beginning to be built. The Germans will occupy that later. November 1st, the Germans evacuated Fort Vaux, one of the major forts we talked about earlier that they had captured earlier in the year. The French occupied it a few days later. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit of political stuff. On December 6th, the battle is still going on. This is almost 10 months after it started. On that date, Prime Minister, the British Prime Minister, Herbert Asquith, resigned. And he was replaced by David Lloyd George. Lloyd George criticized the British Commander General Haig. And Haig wasn't really involved in this battle. He's He's got another little thing going on, <laughs> which we'll talk about in the future. Uh, but they did not like each other. He's, he was not a fan of General Haig. Remember, Haig is the supreme British commander. I should have probably put this in the Psalm episode, Scott. But anyway, um, Haig was the supreme British commander. He had replaced the original one, uh, Sir John French. And Lloyd George said, Haig does not care how many men he loses. He just squanders the lives of these boys. I mean to save some of them in the future. You know, and that reputation has stuck with Haig right down to the present. I don't know if it's fair or not, but more on that later. On speaking about people being removed or replaced, we've had several lately, haven't we, Scott? Yeah, uh, people are changing horses midstream all over the place. Exactly. Uh, you know, these guys weren't getting results. They weren't bringing that fabulous breakthrough, miraculous victory that everybody was hoping for. So on, on December 13th, it's France's turn to replace somebody, <laughs> and they re and the French government replaces Joffre, the man who had kind of been the hero of the Marne, but now he's the goat. He's removed as the French commander-in-chief, and he was replaced with a man named Robert Nivelle. Hey everyone, Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Nivelle had been an artillery colonel at the beginning of the war, but he had risen up rapidly through the ranks. He famously proclaimed at Verdun, and let's see if I can do my best Gandalf uh, impression. He <laughs> oh, okay, said, "Okay, here we go. They shall not pass." <laughs> Take that ball. I kid you not, people. That's he said. He, he did. He actually did say that. They shall not pass. I mean, J.R.R. Tolkien was also wounded in World War One, and I can't remember which battle. Uh, it wouldn't be this because he's British, and it would take British involvement, but. You know, I would like to think that maybe he heard that and that influenced what he wrote later. He it wouldn't surprise me. He probably read it in a newspaper or something. But anyway, I don't know if Nivelle took a staff and like, you know, crashed it to the ground, breaking rocks up and scaring a Balrog that was in the vicinity. <laughs> probably not. But anyway, sorry, folks. I'm a Lord of the Rings nerd. I'm getting sidetracked. So let's get back to the real war. Nivelle, the new French commander, supreme commander, Y'all, I hope y'all are taking notes. You got to keep up with these guys. They keep changing. You know, if you don't like the current commander, just wait a while. <laughs> just wait five minutes. Yeah. Well, except in the British case. Uh, spoiler alert, Haig is going to stick. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. But again, we'll let you be the judge of that later. Nivelle, the French, the new French Supreme Commander, ordered another attack on the German lines north of Verdun. It began with, you guessed it, artillery barrage. <laughs> And a million shells. So just, you know, listener, just throw out some ridiculously high number and you'll probably be not high enough. These shattered the German defenses. And despite terrible weather, the French captured two towns that had been lost in February, including the town, not the fort, of Douaumont. And that was it. The Germans were done. Their attack had started out really well, made some progress, but the French just were bringing in too many guys fresh guys. The Germans were not replacing troops like the French were, and the French had a great supply situation. One of the great questions of the battle is, uh, and uh, nobody has been able to answer this necessarily, at least not to my satisfaction, but why didn't the Germans try to disrupt the sacred road, the supply line that was keeping the French alive? I mean, they could have sent some airplanes over and bombed it, and that would have been it. Um, They didn't. Hmm. And I'm not really sure why. I've read a couple of explanations, but I didn't really buy them necessarily. But that's on Falkenhayn, you know? I don't know the exact reason. I'll throw out some speculation and tell me if it matches up with what you've read. But I would think that from 
we'll we'll talk more about airplanes in a later episode because that's fascinating in its own right. They don't really do much at this time except for reconnaissance. Um, of course, there are dogfights. Some are famous, but uh, airplanes are so unreliable at this time that it's just as you'll be taken out by your own engine as much as you will by an enemy in pursuit. And they're fairly easy to shoot down, too. So maybe they were trying to conserve their strength and their air strength and not get too far from their own lines. That's a good possibility, I would say. And these are not B-52s, listeners. Uh, We'll talk more about them. But there's very little what you can do with bombing. Um, Mm -hmm. At least at this stage. They'll get better. But right now, uh uh-uh. Right. I mean, they can maybe unload some machine gun fire. But with all those troops, the plane could much more easily be taken out. So that's a bombing, and perhaps the the road is too far behind enemy lines for any meaningful artillery attack. That would be my guess, based on very little. But um, what have you read, James? What are theories on that? Honestly, I don't remember everything I've read so much, but but I think those were certainly theories that have been mentioned in some of the the writing. But the fact of the matter is, is they didn't, and so that kept France alive and and, and gave them the ability to not only stop the German assault, but to push it back and push the Germans back eventually to the uh, Hindenburg line. So the battle ends in December after, after the 13th, and the battle had lasted 299 days. That is just mind-boggling. You can fit 50 of the Six Days War between Israel and surrounding nations in 1967 in this battle. Yeah, 100 Gettysburgs, you know, think, <laughs> Gettysburg, the longest battle of the Civil War. Three days. <laughs> this is 299. But again, it's really a series of battles that occurred in roughly the same spot. So want to sum up the results? Yeah, you take it away and then I'll give my own spin and All right. we'll see what works. Let's do it. The Germans ended up retreating, as we said, and they were more than four miles from Verdun. Overall, the battle, as I've already basically said, was a failure for the Germans. The French were bled white. Remember how Falkenhayn said we're going to bleed them white? And he succeeded, but what he didn't plan on was that the Germans were also bled white. Both sides were just absolutely devastated. 75%, maybe even 80 of the entire French army had served in at least part of the battle. I think I already mentioned that, but it bears repeating that you know, if, if you were a French uh, soldier years after the war and you went to a reunion or you met other French soldiers, the chances are overwhelming that they would have also served at Verdun and you would have too. Total casualties were at least 700,000. Remember, listeners, that these casualty figures are very doubtful. Nobody knows for sure who was killed or how many were killed at any of these battles. So these are just very rough estimates. And you read different sources and you'll see very different numbers, as I've noticed. Some casualty estimates are as high as a million total, a million. Um, And of these casualties, most people wouldn't say as high as a million, but of these casualties, about 300,000 total combining both sides were killed. That's about one death for every minute of the battle. And again, that's mind-boggling, especially when you consider that this battle lasted 300 days, almost a year. And there's one soldier killed every minute on average. The French probably lost slightly more than the Germans, about 10% of all French war dead in the entire war were from Verdun. One half of French between, yeah, it's just this staggering, this, the massive scale of this battle. One half of Frenchmen between 20 and 30 years old were killed. So again, 
I think it's one half. Yeah, my my word processor changes fractions to these tiny little things I can barely read, but it's one half. The French Army's offensive capabilities were shattered, you know, at least for now. There's not going to be any more French attacks for a while. General Pétain's reputation soared. He's the hero of Verdun. He came to be identified with a more caring and human approach to French soldiers. Uh, he was promoted to marshal. That's the highest rank in the, the European armies. It's roughly equivalent to a five-star general in the U.S. Army. And there would be no more major offenses for a while, but the two sides continued to bombard and harass each other. Remember that World War I, you had almost constant fighting, just not always major fighting. There were trench raids. There were always snipers trying to pick off enemy soldiers. Machine guns would rattle off every, you know, every day pretty much. So there's never, or I shouldn't say never, never say never, right, Scott? Right. <laughs> but there's rarely a day when there's not somebody killed and uh, some kind of combat going on, but just not the major combat like you have at Verdun. Now, uh, what's interestingly enough, there's another equally massive battle, in fact, more massive going on at the same time called the Somme, and we're going to do an episode on that a, a little bit later. It's going on roughly at the same time. It actually started started later than Verdun, which is why we're going to do it later. And I think it ends earlier, or yeah, it's, it ends a little bit earlier. More men are going to die at the Somme, if you can believe that. Like more, more than what did I say? Three hundred thousand. More than three hundred thousand are going to die, but the proportion of casualties suffered at Verdun to the number of men who fought was much higher than at any other battle in World War One. In other words, if you take the percentage of casualties divided by total soldiers in the battle. Verdun gets the prize of being the bloodiest. Also, the number killed per square mile was the greatest at Verdun. Verdun was also the greatest air battle. It demonstrated the importance of air su superiority. So there were a lot of planes, even though they didn't go, they didn't go, think to go uh, destroy the French supply line or, or couldn't for whatever reason, but, but there's a lot of air-to-air -air combat going on. And to this day, the battlefield is still cratered and pockmarked. Many unexploded shells, maybe as many as 12 million still remain. So if you go over there, be careful, people. <laughs> Don't watch where you step. Trenches can, can also be seen. I'm sure that you can't. There's areas that are probably, I've never been there, obviously, but uh, I'm sure they have signs and you can't go here and all that. And later, interestingly enough, an ossuary was built. That's a big uh, place where bones are held. It was built to hold the bones of about 130,000 unidentified soldiers of both sides that were collected from the battlefield. So uh, that wraps up my part. Scott has a few more things to say, but again, just a, a, a battle that we just can't even wrap our brains around because we Americans have never seen anything like that. Right. And it's cliche to say something is hell. Uh, we'll say that if we, I don't know, run a mile or two miles and, oh, there was a hill there and it was hell. But this scene, when we're describing Verdun, if we've done it justice at all, when we say hell, this is a lower circle in Dante's Inferno. If you could imagine the scene, the bombardment, the explosion, the smell of decaying flesh, everything that you could think of of a horrible war experience would be found here. And something that James mentioned about Verdun being World War I in a microcosm, there's another way where I think that's true, that 
for some, it seems that it's pointless because the battle is swinging back and forth. You can't really point to one specific stand, one attack, one counterattack, and say, this definitively turned the tide of the battle as a whole. We don't have a heroic cavalry charge or a surprise flanking maneuver like the Civil War and, and those stories where it seems like the entire the, the gravity of the battle shifted at once. So in that sense, Verdun can seem like a massive waste of human life where whatever bravery and gallantry of the individuals, their suffering didn't really amount to anything. But for Verdun, I, I mean, I would say it's definitely significant because it's the cumulative effect of all of these actions that lead to a French victory because Germany didn't break through. They didn't knock them out of the war. Um, and this becomes apparent in the accumulation of all of these attacks and all of the retakings and takings of fortresses. Uh, because if a contribution here or there had been removed, then Germany maybe had broken through. So if if there is a way, I'd say it's on the German side because for the Germans, um, the hundreds of thousands who died in battle, um, they had to abandon their position. But for the French, they were defending their homes and they did it successfully. So that's my take on Verdun. Um, any other thoughts, James, on its significance? No, I think that was a good summary. It's just something that nobody ever seen before and i don't know that we've seen anything like it since in terms of just the massive scale maybe the eastern front in world war ii but that's another story right well that's all for done in this episode and in the next episode we're going to be looking at a different aspect of world war one something that gets overlooked but is significant and it has to do with naval warfare there's a huge evolutionary step that happens in naval technology from what had been the standard approach to naval warfare in the 19th century. So we're going to see all that play out and what its significance was on World War I in the next episode. Okay, well, that wraps things up for today's episode. Thank you so much for sticking with me to the end. Once again, I want to start things off by thanking the Spy Masters of History Unplugged. I'll explain what that is in a second. Our fantastic Spy Masters include Chris C., David Santi, Josh from VFW Post 2285, Jake Harrington, Jennifer French Lee, Josh Reddick, Jeff Mitchell, owner of Mountain West Commercial in Las Vegas, Michael from New York, Michael Piccinetti, Nick Brooks, Rob from Chicago, Ryan Gillen, Salvador Sanchez, Tom from Ohio, Moondoggy from Ohio, Bill Ivey, and Bruce Ashby from Wire Meets Wood Guitars at WNWGuitars.com. If you'd like to support the show, there's some very easy ways to do so. First, go to the site halfpricehistory.com. I've worked out an arrangement with a lot of the authors who've appeared on this show, and you can go there and get their books for 50% off. All you have to do is go to halfpricehistory.com and enter the promo code UNPLUGGED at checkout. Second, please leave a review and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player of choice, whether Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever. Third, join our Facebook group. You can go to Facebook and search for History Unplugged. There, you can talk with other fans of the show about recent episodes, what you liked, what you didn't like. Also, I have exclusive content there, such as live streams, where I do live versions of podcast episodes where you can leave feedback as I'm talking, and I will address it on air. Last, and I think this is the best, is to join our membership program, the Knowlton's Rangers. The Knowlton's Rangers were George Washington spies during the Revolutionary War, but it's also the name of the membership program for History Unplugged. If you go to patreon.com slash unplugged, you can join the membership program at three levels. 
If you join at the Scout level, you'll get all 400 episodes of History Unplugged absolutely ad-free and early access to new episodes. If you join at the second level, the Intelligence Officer level, get all the stuff that Scouts get, along with bonus episodes. There's currently about 40 of them, including series on Audie Murphy and Operation Long Jump about the Nazi attempt to assassinate FDR, Churchill, and Stalin in 1943. Finally, if you join at the Spymaster level, you'll get a shout-out to you and or your business at the end of each episode. You get a three-pack of hardcover history history books, and you can find out what those are if you go to patreon.com slash unplugged. Finally, you can ask me a question about history on absolutely any topic on earth, and I will research it and devote an entire episode to your question. Probably about 30% of the questions in the archive for the show have been based on these sorts of questions. So there you go. Go to patreon.com slash unplugged to learn more. All right, well, that is all for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Calitrin. Text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605 and I'll send you a link to a wonderful product that can help you finally succeed in shedding that extra weight. I took Calitrin for several weeks last year and I felt great in several ways. I felt stronger, my workouts felt easier, I slept better, I was noticeably trimmer, there was no downside. Text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605 right now to see this week's special offer on Calitrin. Calitrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an 86% success rate with their 90-day supply, and this week, take advantage of my special offer. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is easy. Just text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605, and I'll send you a link to the special offer. Again, text UNPLUGGED to 30605.